pray. Father, thank you that regardless of the week that we've been having or the day that we've been having or the moment in our life or whatever has happened to us this past week, I thank you that we can sing that song. Your faithfulness will always be there. Even when we are faithless, you are faithful. Even when we are struggling, you are there to give us assurance. Father, thank you that we look not to um, us finishing the race, but we look to you finishing the race, the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, as we look at John, as we look at who you are, um, that our minds would be overwhelmed by the magnitude of the gospel and, and the fact that you, the Son of God, took on flesh and came to earth. Father, be with us now in your name. Amen. Well, I would encourage you to turn to the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 1 today. You can also make your way to the book of Exodus. Um, it, it took me uh, four sermons to say that we're going to jump to Exodus for a minute. John is, well, I have to say too, um, last week I lied. I said that we would finish up the prologue this week. That's not going to happen. Sorry. We're going we're gonna to have to add another week to that one. John, over the course of the prologue, has been describing for us, um, big picture terms, who Jesus is. And then he's going to spend the rest of the book after verse 18 of John chapter 1 giving us more details. And the descriptions that John uses, even in the prologue, can be hard for us to wrap our minds around, can be hard for us to comprehend. I mean, we're dealing with God here. So... As, as, as finite creatures, it's, it's impossible for us to grasp the infinite. So in order for us to understand even some of the descriptions that John is giving to us in the prologue, we have to look outside of the Gospel of John, and we have to look at the Old Testament and really remind us of some truths that we've looked at previously. Uh, when we decided to preach through the book of Exodus as our last preaching series, that was for two purposes. Number one, I love that story of the Exodus. But number two, it was to set us up for the gospel of John. So in some respects, the story of the Exodus, us preaching through the Exodus, was a, for our church, a giant prologue to us looking at John. And so as we begin this morning, I would encourage you to turn to Exodus. We're going to read some passages there. Where the first one is going to be in Exodus 6. Because in order for us to understand what John's going to say today, we have to read it in light of what happened with the Exodus. Now, just to catch everyone up on the Exodus story, I know not all of you um, were there as we began the Exodus story, and some of you weren't with us as we went through it. The Exodus is that very familiar story of um, God saving the nation of Israel from Egypt by using Moses, his servant. And we got to see a lot of really cool things in the the book of Exodus, things that, that were hard for us to grasp and just to see the faithfulness of God towards this people. Um, just to remind everyone of the story in a big picture context, uh, we meet Israel at the beginning of Exodus stuck in slavery. They are as good as dead. They are in slavery. They can't do anything about it. They've been enslaved there for 430 years. And we meet this man by Moses. The first thing we see is God miraculously saving him, even as he's put in a basket and his 
and is carried to uh, is carried down this river until the Lord uses uh, Pharaoh's daughter to save him, and he grows up. And then we see that he runs off from Egypt because he killed uh, an Egyptian, and he was shunned from his family. And so he goes off from Egypt and he runs away. But we very quickly realize God is going to use this man called Moses. And one of the things that we said along the way was Moses was one of these characters that if you were going to pick a person to um, use, if you were going to pick a character that you would want to put your name with, you wouldn't want to pick a murderer. You wouldn't want to pick a guy like Moses. Even a guy, as he says, struggles with his speech. So, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to have a herald for the Lord, you probably want to pick somebody that has a natural, um, um, this is really funny that I'm stumbling over this, has natural oratory skills. But God doesn't do that. And what we see in chapter 6 is that God goes to Moses and even the nation of Israel. And after the burning bush incident and after God says, I'm going to use, you're going to go back to Egypt. Moses goes back to Egypt and he goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, your people, who, I, don't, who, I don't care who your people are. They're not your people, they're my people. And no, I'm not going to let them go because they're my slaves and I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And he, 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 bears, he gives them greater burdens by having no straw for their bricks. And the nation of Israel then rises up and says, okay, you fool, you made our lives even worse. Why should we follow you? Why should we listen to you? And this is what God speaks to Moses to say and says, declare this to Israel. It says this in 6.6. 6. Say, say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you, sh- you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from underneath the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to a land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for your possession. I am the Lord." Even before any of the uh, plagues happened, even before Israel saw any of the loosening of the bonds from Pharaoh, God declares to the nation of Israel, I'm going to save you. You are going to be my people. I am going to live, you, rather you are going to live in, commun- in communion with me. Now obviously we see the plagues, we see that um, it took Pharaoh quite a few uh, uh, conversations in order to get to the point where he would let them go because God, he determined when that would happen. And then we see that they cross the Red they're, they're released from slavery. They cross the Red Sea. They have a bunch of these testings all the way uh, to the mountain of Sinai. But God clearly has a direction and has a, um, has a purpose for them. One of the things that we saw in the Exodus is that God did not rescue them And then say, okay, you're on your own. I hope you can stay out of captivity again. I hope you can figure out how to live a better life. Okay, I saved you. Now it's up to you. Rather, what we saw is that God saved them. And every single step of the way, the Lord miraculously, sovereignly, um, divinely led them, told them, here is how I want you to live as my people. God saved them not to live alone, but saved them to live in community, in communion with him. But there's a problem. The problem with living in communion with God 
The problem with having a relationship with God is that they're sinners. Is that God hates their sin. Is that God can't live with their sin. Because God has to punish sin. Because he's God. He can't stand that. He, he can't overlook that. He has to look at their sin and punish that. And so God is saying, now I want to live in communion with you, in relationship with you, but you're a sinner. So how is that going to happen? Well, what we see is that God gives them a command. And the command is to build a tabernacle. The command is, this is God's way of saying, okay, you're going to live in communion with each other. So Moses, here is what you have to do. He says this in 2415. This is at Mount Sinai. And I mean, let's just remind ourselves of what happened at Mount Sinai, where the first thing that, the first command that uh, Moses and Israel got at Mount Sinai was only Moses goes on the mountain. I am only going to allow one person to go. And it's not because Moses was not a sinner. It's because this is God saying, I'm going to extend my grace to Moses. No one else touches the mountain. No animals touches the mountain. No animals or people graze opposite the mountain on the other mountain, lest they see God and die because they're sinners. And after laying out the Ten Commandments, after laying out the law, after demonstrating for them the separation that God has with man... It's really what we see in 20 through 23 of Exodus. Here's how bad, here's how sinful, here's the standard that I'm judging you by. And so we read that and we go, oh my goodness, I can't measure up. No one can measure up. You you get done with Exodus 20 through 23 and all of us have to be sitting with our hands in our laps and goes, I don't measure up. God then commands Moses and the nation of Israel, here is how I'm going to dwell with you. It says this, 24, 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Just, I mean, consider that. I'm like singing being the people at the bottom, this devouring cloud, and Moses is walking into it. I, that's, that would be crazy to see. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, and, take, and that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moved him shall all receive a contribution for me. We see the contribution, gold, silver, bronze, purple, uh, goat skin, acacia wood, oil, stones, all this stuff. And look what it says. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture so that you shall make it. And really for the rest of the book, with it, with, without ex- there's a few exceptions of some stories in there. But for the rest of the book of Exodus, we saw this dwelling place, this tabernacle described. And this dwelling place and tabernacle was very specific. If God is going to dwell in our midst, it has to be a very specific way. There has to be steps. Why? Because of a holy God is going to be that close to sinners. There's going to have to be some stuff that stands in the way to appease God's wrath. 
So when we see this dwelling place, we see particular steps that the nation of Israel will go through, basins and altars and sacrifices and veils, all standing in between God and man so that God does not completely obliterate them in his wrath. God was in the middle of the camp. That's where the tabernacle went. He was in the middle of the camp. But there were clear elements that separated God and man. Now the tabernacle and the temple, because obviously the the permanent dwelling place of God, if you continue in the story, was the temple. The tabernacle and the temple was an act of grace from God to allow his chosen nation to have a relationship with him. It was an act of grace. He did not have to do that. But God, in, in his goodness, says, you were created to be in communion with me. And so I'm going to create the necessary steps to maintain the separation because of your sin, but allow you to have that communion with me. The relationship was there, but the separation was there. That separation as an appeasement for God because of our sin You see, the driving force behind God's relationship with man at this time was your sin gets in the way. I can't fully dwell with you. Yes, I can have a tent. Yes, I can have walls. Yes, I can be there. But I can't fully dwell with you. There's also another thing that the tabernacle did. The tabernacle made the invisible God visible. It made the invisible God visible. How do we see God? I don't know. Spirit. How do you know when God is there? Before this, I, I wouldn't know. But God, in the Exodus, in this story, created these elements, these man-made elements that pointed to God. These weren't God, the, the elements of the, the altar and the basin and the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies and the, and, the, and, the, and the Ark of the Covenant. They weren't God, but all of those elements made God visible to Israel. You would know when God was present through these elements. But you would also know when God was away from these elements. Look at one more passage of Exodus, and then we're going to go to John. Exodus 40. At the very end of the book. This is where we ended it. After all of the elements had been made, and placed, and set up, and consecrated, The cloud covered the tent of meeting. This is 4034. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not even able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I said this then, I'll say this now. I mean, imagine the stuff that Moses saw that he walked into, like the devouring fire on the top of Mount Sinai, and he walked into that. But when the Lord filled the tabernacle, not even Moses could walk into it. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. This dwelling place, these particular elements demonstrated where God dwelled with man. When God was there, people knew about it and you could not come close. But when God was moving, then of course the tabernacle was taken down. The elements were separated and they would move to the next spot until the Lord filled the tabernacle once again. 
So God dwelt with man, but it was in a temporary location. It was in a location that could come and go. The invisible God wasn't always there. Now, he's omnipresent, so he was always there. But the invisible God wasn't always filling the tabernacle. But that's how God dwelt with man. Turn to John 1. Now, with that background in mind, we're going to look at verse 14. One verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, the Son of God, the one who was, the one who always was, was as we talked about when we looked at verse 1. The Son of God became flesh. This is a theological side note. Jesus was not in the beginning. Jesus was not before the foundation of the world. Now I know our kids say that Jesus was before the foundation of the world. But Jesus as the person, the God-man, Jesus as the person in the flesh, became a person at the moment of conception in Mary. Jesus, as the person that we know him, who walked on this earth, has a beginning. He began. He became. God the Son is eternal, so I'm not saying that God the Son began at the moment of conception. But God the Son is eternal. Jesus, as the person, the flesh and blood person, has a beginning. People were at his birth. He had a birthday as a human had a birthday because he's truly man. You and I have a birth. We have a beginning. He's truly man. That's a theological side note that we'll get into more as we look at this book. He became flesh. This term flesh is probably the harshest term that we could use for the body. But I think it's the best term, obviously. I'm glad that John used it here. You see, he could have used man or human. That kind of means the same thing. But flesh is more comprehensive. Flesh refers not only to the flesh, but also to the bones and the blood and the soul. The whole human being. I also love that he said that he became flesh because that doesn't exclude anyone. If John said he became a man, then maybe somebody could say Jesus only came to earth for men, not for women. If John said he became a man and dwelt with the Jews, then the Jews could go, see, he's only our savior not the Gentile Savior. If he started at his social class, he became a man and was a free man. You could go, well, no, he only came for free individuals, but not slaves. See where I'm going with this? From Colossians that we talked about in Sunday school. We as humans like to make up these distinctions of, no, he's, he only came for me and like to put each other in classes. Here, John says, the word became flesh. Everyone is included in that. No person could say, I'm not flesh. There's other dividing markers that we could have. But he became flesh. He became just like you and I. He became the same flesh that we had, the same substance that was created and breathed into 
Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. That's what was, that, that's what was created and breathed into Jesus. He became the same flesh and substance as you and I. Now, here's the big thing that surrounds this discussion. It's called the hypostatic union. If I can use theological term. How does this work? How can I say that the Son of God became something and say that Jesus had a starting point, if you will, because he was, he was conceived. He went from not being here to being here, but the Son of God has always been here. How, how can this happen? Well, this is what's called the hypostatic union, the combination of the divine and the human nature in one singular person. And what we declare with this is that the person of Jesus is truly God. Truly God. And truly man. Truly God, just as God the Father, God, and, and God the Spirit, just as he was before the creation of the world, before you and I were not. He, Jesus is truly God. And he is truly man, just like our flesh and blood. Except without sin. You can add that. The word which is God became flesh. And without ceasing to be God in his person, in his flesh, was the word. The word merely did not, with the word merely being the first chronological order in the sense of the word was there. And then he became flesh. One commentator said this, what emerged out of the word was flesh. No change took place in the word. There's no transubstantiation here where all of a sudden the word morphs into something different. The word isn't replaced with, with a different mixture of things. Nothing is taken away. So now we have the word, the son of God, the always was wasing one. That references to the first sermon. You can go read that one. Dwelt among us. This word dwelt. The other way we could translate this, and I have to be really, I'm going to say this really slowly because there's a pastor fail video out there online. You can go Google this later. The other way we could translate this word dwelt among us, he pitched his tent among us. He pitched his tent. This picture is directly back to the Exodus. When he, tabled, when he tabernacled among us, he pitched his tent among us. He, as one person said, moved into the neighborhood. I am here. This idea would not have been lost on John's readers. They were Jews. They understood. They, they, rec they were recognizing of the temple. They were recognizing of the tabernacle. They knew that's where God is. And here, John is declaring that the Word of God did not take over this structure that man made. Rather, the Word of God became flesh and pitched his tent among us, dwelt with us, tabernacled among us. Jesus dwelt with man in a manner far more intimate than the nation of Israel and the world had ever seen before. During the tabernacle, the relationship that God had with man had some limitations on man's side of things. Only certain people could interact with God closely. Only certain people. You had the vast majority of those who could go to the entrance of the tabernacle with the sacrifice and stand at the gate 
and watch your sacrifice be sacrificed for the Lord. And you would stop right there. You could see the Holy of Holies. You could see the veil. You could see the smoke. You could smell the aromas coming from the altar of incense. But you stopped right there. You felt that separation. Some more though, the priests, they had the ability to go a little further in. They could walk around the basin. They could walk around the altar. They could even go in to the holy place and see the lampstand and the bread of the presence and the altar of incense because they were ministering there. So those priests, those few special priests with the number of, you know, among the nation of Israel, they could go in there so they could get a little closer to God, but there was still separation. Separation that only the high priest could break, but he could only break it once a year. When he could go into the Holy of Holies and offer atonement for our sins. Then there's Moses. Let's think about all the interactions Moses had with God during the Exodus. And I'm actually going to leave the tabernacle. Just consider the interaction that Moses had with God. He saw the burning bush. Moses, take off your sandals for you're on holy ground. He was on top of Mount Sinai for how many days when everyone else was said, if you touch the mountain, you shall surely die. But Moses got to go up there and commune with the Lord, receive these commands from the Lord, hear his voice. You wonder what he sounded like. You wonder how that went down, receive the, the, the two tablets of stone and the Ten Commandments, received all of the other laws. He got to commune with God in a very unique way. This was a guy who had the audacity, who had the, the, the gall to go, God, I want to see you. And God went, okay. You can only see my backside, and at that, I'm only going to show you my goodness. We can see that, his description of that coming out of him in Exodus 34. Moses got to sit with God in the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting is this place, we, we, we can read it in Exodus 33, 11, where Moses was able to go out with God. It was a tent outside of the camp and sit there and commune with God. And the communion with God was so great that when he left the tent of meeting, and meeting, his face shone with a radiance that scared the people. So he had to cover his face. But listen to the description that Moses gave of how God and Moses interacted. In this tent of meeting, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Imagine, everyone else comes up to the temple and knows, tabernacle and goes, he's not my friend. He's my God who hates my sin. And here, Moses can have this interaction with God as his friend. Well, guess what happens when the Son of Man takes on flesh and dwells among us? John gets to introduce us to his friend. When the Word took on flesh, He did not take on flesh and interact with us in the same way as God interacted with Israel in the tabernacle. Rather, He took on flesh and became flesh and walked around with all of us and became our friends. And mind you, Jesus is truly... The, the, he, he is operating as the tabernacle. Jesus was God's temple. No longer was God's temple a building. It was a person. Don't believe me? This is what we're going to look at when we get to John 2. 
And I'm not going to steal my thunder there, so I'm going to say this briefly. But, you know, when Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up again, that's what he's talking about. You think God's meeting place, God's dwelling place with man is that physical building over there. No, no longer is that the, the, the dwelling place of God. I'm the dwelling place of God here on earth. I mean, imagine that. You you used to go to the temple to meet with God. Now Jesus is saying, no, I'm the place that you meet with God. Just imagine. Because God's Spirit dwells in him, as a person instead of a building, people didn't have to go to a place to meet with God. God in the form of Jesus came to them. Because he was God in human form. He was able to go to places and meet with people who would never step foot in the, t- in the temple. Tax collectors and prostitutes and lepers. Unclean. All these people unclean who would say, I can't go there. We're able to meet with Jesus, the Son of God. Consider this as it relates to the Christian church today. The flaw that so many of us have, the struggle that so many of us have, is that when we come to church, that we come to those religious places, when we come to God, we think we have to come with our best. We think we have to come hiding who we are. We think we have to come with with us all being put together. I'm sorry, we act as if we are Old Testament believers at that time. As if we have to, the only way we can approach God is with a sacrifice. What Jesus says is you don't have to be put together because I'm going to be your sacrifice. There's a song that um, I sang growing up in youth group. And uh, it's, a, listen, it's an 80s Christian song. I'm, I'm, I'm going to read you the lyrics. I'm not going to sing it for you, but just have 80s Christian music in your mind and you can get the tune. They all sound the same, GCD. Those are the chords on, on, the, on, on the guitar. The song is called Pray Where You Are. It's written by, by the Lost Boys. You can YouTube it or whatever on the way home and, and, and listen to it. And we actually quit singing it when I was in youth group because there were some issues with it. Because as you're going to read, as, as I read for you all these places, you might not want to pray in all of those places. Or you might not be praying in all those places. But I'd like to change the song. Instead of pray where you are, I'd like to say Jesus is even there. So allow me to read for you these chords in submarines and tanks, and in SNLs and banks, in cancer wards, in prisons and in bars, on the earth and on the moon, in the closet in your room, in the flop houses and think tanks and farms, to the salesman forever trying to sell, to the faithful daughter walking to the well, Jesus is even there. In the fields and in the factories, there's no limits, rules, or boundaries. At work or school or driving in your car, Jesus is always there. And this next part is why we quit singing it. In strip joints and in the church, on a desperate lost child search, on airplanes and back roads and rails, on the blacktops and beach, down the sewer up the creeks, in the penthouse and the pool halls and the jails, to the criminal with no one left to con, to the movie star whose days has come and gone. Jesus is always there. In the fields and in the factories, there are no limits, rules, or boundaries. At the school or work or driving in your car, Jesus is always there. 
in the deserts, off the shores, in peacetime and in war, in the pentagons, the courthouses, and the malls, in tents and in the caves, at truck stops, by the graves, in our hopes and fears and struggles, great and small, to the corner prophet no one seems to hear, to the president who prays for four more years, Jesus is always there. When the Son of God took on flesh, we can actually say those words and it's true. Because the Son of God, what he was known for was walking into every single place or situation on earth and being present. He was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. He met with people on the side of graves. He touched lepers. He, he walked into people who were having their worst day and gave them comfort. When the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us, he brought with him hope for us all. I love how Hebrews 4 says it. 416 through 18 says this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What does this say? You cannot sit there today and say, God, Jesus is not with me. Jesus would not be here with me in this despair. Jesus does not understand this. Because when the Son of God took on flesh, he took on all of the burdens and understood that weakness. Yet without sin, but that weakness of the human body. He saw his friends die. He saw disease and cancer and destruction rip through this earth. And the Son of God taking on flesh came and said, I'm coming for that. So he doesn't come to you and say, clean up your life and you can come to me. Rather, he says, I'm coming to you even in your despair, even in your filth, even in your sin, I will come to you. John continues in this verse and he says, we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. What is glory? How do you see glory? I googled Define glory, because, you know, Google's always a great place to start. Glory can be used as a noun. It can be used to describe the high renown and honor won by notable achievement. We would say, we fight and die for the glory of one's nation. It can be used as, as, you know, a description of great beauty. The train was restored to all of its former glory. It could be used as a verb. Take pride or pleasure in something. Those individuals gloried in their independence. So when John here says, we have seen his glory, what is he talking about? Well, first we have to say the only thing that truly has glory is God. So anything else pales in comparison because God is the only thing that really is, is, can be glorified appropriately. But God is invisible. 
So now we say we have seen his glory. So somehow John is saying, I have seen the glory of the Father being manifested in Jesus. In the same way that the elements of the tabernacle themselves were beautiful. But they didn't have glory. Until God dwelt in the tabernacle. And then you would say the tabernacle is glorified. It is glory. Well here John is saying that when the Son of God took on, became flesh and dwelt among men. I have seen God's glory manifested in the Son of God. But when does this happen? It's interesting. Is that every time that God's glory is described... It's described as a bright light. It's described as devouring fire. It's described as this um, uh, yeah, light that is, that is thrust upon us. This is what he's talking about in, in uh, 1, 6, 9. True light. This is what happens in 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 12 when Solomon finally builds the temple. And it says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. This bright light uh, shining forth from this dwelling place. Well, here John is saying that we have seen his glory. We have seen the radiance of God in him. We have seen who he truly is. The question I have for John is how have you seen it? And I think there's a couple of ways you can see this glory. You can see it as it's slowly dispersed across Jesus' ministry. You can see it as he heals the leper, as he heals the blind man, as he raises Lazarus from the grave, as he prays, as he walks on water, as he does things that you and I cannot do. But there's one moment when God's glory, when the, when the Son of Man has the same radiance as even that of the tabernacle and temple. And the interesting thing is, John doesn't put, in, put it in his gospel. Turn to Matthew 17. When John says, we have seen his glory as glory of only the, the Son of God, he then could say at some point in this, let me describe for you what this glory looks like in the person of Christ. But he doesn't. And I don't know why. And here's my best guess, if I will. It's because, again, John doesn't want to get in the way of anything. Matthew 17 is the transfiguration of Jesus. And it says this, 17.1. After six days, Jesus took, him, took with him Peter and James and John. Three people saw this. Jesus is the three, three of his disciples saw this. Peter, James, and John. And I wonder if John did not want to get in the way of all the questions of, okay, describe that for me. What was it like, again, to receive own glory and to take anything away from Jesus? That's my best guess. And led them up to a high mountain by himself. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared with him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. Peter, if you wish, where, where to go? If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he will... And, he was still speaking when behold a bright 
cloud overshadowed them and the voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well. Please listen to him. And when his disciples heard this, they fell on their face and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, Rise and have no fear. I wonder if it was at this point that John realized who his friend was. Oh, I've known he was the son of God. But wow, Jesus. So when John says, we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father. I'm sure John has this image in his mind. I got to be Moses for a day. I got to see that radiance that was pouring out of Jesus in the same way that that radiance was pouring out of God when Moses interacted in the same way that that radiance was pouring out of the tabernacle and the temple because God is dwelling with us. I got to see that radiance, the the human side of him. I don't know, pulled back how how this works. I'm I'm lost for words because we're dealing with the hypostatic union here. But when John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he is truly saying the son of God, the radiance that we saw all over the Old Testament, that we saw in the tabernacle and the temple, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. I'll go back to where we started. John wants us to meet his friend, his friend that will change your life forever. His friend that was truly a man he was truly God. A friend that had a radiance that was so unimaginable that it's it's even hard for us to describe. We're going to get to walk up to John one day in heaven and go, tell me more. Or maybe we're just going to skip John and go right to Jesus. I don't know. But we're going to get to hear these stories to go, you walked this earth with the Son of God. And he came for an explicit purpose. He didn't come to save the righteous. He didn't come to save those people who had it all together. He didn't come to save the people who would say, I belong at the tabernacle. That's my seat. I can stand there in pride knowing that I'm good with God. No, he came to save the weak and the broken and the faithless. And that's what we see in the gospel. He spends very little time with people who think they have their life together. He spends all of his time with people who go, my life is a train wreck. I need you. And we see that the Son of God took on flesh to go to their doorstep and be with them and say, I'm sufficient for you. As we turn our attention towards communion this morning, you may be sitting here today thinking, I'm I'm not enough. My life isn't enough. I haven't done enough. I'm not good enough. I shouldn't be here. Maybe you crawled in, the, in these doors and you're just like, fine, I'm going to church today. That's, it's okay for you to feel that because let me tell you, you're never going to be enough. And I don't say that to depress you. I say that to get you to look outside of yourself and to look at Jesus. He came to those who were not enough so that he could live a life that was enough Die a death that was enough. Rise again and have victory over death so that we could sit here and say, physically, I'm not enough, but I have been declared enough because of 
Christ's work. As we take communion today, if, if, if you're here and you haven't placed your faith in Christ, if you're still struggling with these things, trying to figure this out, we would ask that you just let the communion elements pass you by because we don't want them to confuse you. We don't take these elements to make us enough. We don't take these elements to um, add to anything. We take these elements so that we can be reminded by the sacrament that his body and his blood were enough. Let's pray and we can take communion together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you that you did not leave us alone. You did not leave us in our despair. You didn't say, well, if you come to me, I'll fix you. I'll save you. Rather, you took on flesh and came to us. Thank you that we can sit here today in humility, knowing we'll never be enough. We will always struggle. We will always be broken. And yet we will never out you. And we can always know that your life, death, burial, and resurrection are sufficient for us. Thank you for that hope. In your name, amen.